Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Ask an Addiction Specialist. I'm Bob Weathers. Very happy to have you with us. This is our 11th or 12th podcast. We have a whole cache of these uh, podcasts available to you in archive form at Beginnings Treatment Centers online, as well as uh, Ask an Addiction Specialist Facebook group. Um, really happy for you to be here. Let me just recap where we were in our last session. We looked at uh, forgiveness. We introduced the psychology of forgiveness, and we went more deeply into breaking the vicious cycle of shame. And we're really looking at how do I manage forgiving myself as an interior practice. I want to recommend that you tie in the first introduction of this, which was in the fourth podcast, which was on self-compassion. I call it the advanced psychology of forgiveness because we introduced more psychology research and theory last week that looks at forgiveness and then how we can work with that internally. Today we're going to be moving uh, in, a, in a different direction, less about in, in the internal work of forgiveness and more about the relational work of forgiveness. And this is really referring to forgiveness in the context of reconciling relationships when there's been a trust that's been broken. And so I call today's presentation Advanced Psychology of Forgiveness 2. And this second piece will be looking at contributions from psychology that, that discuss relationships, especially attachment theory, about which I'll go in more detail in a few minutes. We'll be looking at the impact of relationships on addiction and on recovery, and we'll be specifically looking at the element of forgiveness in relationships specific to current relationships, which is referred to in psychology as reconciliation. And I'll be distinguishing those relationships that allow for reconciliation from those that don't. What steps are necessary for me to effect uh, the restoration, the restoring of, of trust in a relationship where trust has been damaged or injured? That's really our topic for today. And what will be presumed through all of this is, uh, is that this understanding is essential to successful, sustained recovery. As I mentioned earlier, the group I'm just coming from is that there were several individuals in this group, it was a men's group, that raised their hands to say, to say that it's been breakups in relationships or misunderstandings or betrayals of trust that have led to further addictive behaviors. And without some tools for addressing those ruptures in relationships, that the chances for sustaining recovery are slim or nil. And so I, this, what we'll be talking about today has general application beyond just recovery, but it's absolutely instrumental to the heart of recovery, which is why I'm hoping to leave you with some tips that you can practice yourself. The, the coincidence of our coming up on the holiday season with Christmas and Hanukkah and, other, and New Year's and other holidays where families come together, that coincidence isn't lost on me. The skills that we're talking about will be addressing relationships that run into friction and Typically, that happens in relationships that matter the most to us. So I'm hoping that there'll be traction from what we talked about today that will be applicable to the relationships that you prize most highly. Now, as a quick recap of some of the key points that we talked about last week, I refer you, by the way, to uh, Beginnings Treatment Centers, the video archive located there. You can also go through the Facebook group, Ask an Addiction Specialist, to track the videos uh, that we presented before. Specifically last week, I encourage you to review that because it really is part one of a two-part series. 
We looked at the interior work of forgiveness last week. This week we're going to look at the between component, between two individuals or more. And what I introduced at the very beginning of last week's presentation is the following quote by the, uh, the Christian author, C.S. Lewis. He said, Everyone says that forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. He meant that, as do I, slightly with tongue-in-cheek, because it's really easy to extol the virtues of forgiveness, isn't it, until we actually have to uh, 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 apply it in our lives. It's very challenging. And, I, and I'll tell you what, I think that all of us are in the soup with this one. Uh, most of us don't get much good training or good modeling. We certainly, certainly don't learn this in school. Is How do I repair ruptures in a relationship, particularly when someone stepped on my toes or I on theirs, and we'll talk about what oftentimes happens in place of the restoration of trust in a relationship in a few moments. It's just enough to say that it is a good idea, and it's something that maybe all of us would aspire to, but there are basic skills involved in restoring a relationship that most of us haven't really learned, and it takes a bit of practice, and I'm hoping today that with instruction, and I'll actually be bringing you through an exercise today where you might apply this um, uh, both during our time together today as well as to a real-life relationship. I'm hoping to participate in at least building the foundations for some of the skills that are required in healing relationships. I also introduced last week the work of Dr. Everett Worthington, who's one of the international experts in the whole area of forgiveness. He's written, as I mentioned, he's written over 25 books and and uh, nearly 250 articles centering around this topic from a psychological perspective as well as from a spiritual perspective. I recommend him to you. Uh, Dr. Worthington makes several distinctions that are very helpful to us. One of them I want to mention right now that we introduced last week. He makes a distinction between decisional forgiveness and emotional forgiveness. With decisional forgiveness, I make a decision that I'm not going to hold something against somebody. And maybe more to the point, I make a decision that I'm not going to exact revenge for wrongs done to me. And that's not a bad thing. What decisional forgiveness doesn't address is my coming to peace in terms of the emotions about the wrongdoing. So I may not enact, for example, revenge, and that's a good thing. But decisional forgiveness is a mental decision, and it really doesn't address the emotions that underlie the experience of being harmed or injured in relationship. And that's really the realm of emotional forgiveness. We, we, we discussed this deeply last week in terms of some of the, uh, the steps or aspects of emotional forgiveness that really allow for a healing and, believe it or not, a, a conversion of negative feelings, such as anger and resentment, into positive feelings, including compassion, not only for ourselves, but also for those that have wronged us. And again, I encourage you to review more specifics from last week's presentation. Uh, emotional forgiveness really is about converting uh, the lead of, of negative feeling into the gold of positive feeling, even in the context of injury. In the absence of that, we're left with, with what uh, uh, psychology has, uh, has come to see in, in the realm of addiction and recovery, one of the key triggers for relapse, which is resentment. Without some healing at this deeper level, if we just leave it at the level of a mental decision, I, 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 I make an, a, a decision not to harm you for having harmed me. 
Uh, if we leave it just at that cognitive level, it won't get down to this other level wherein lies the, 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 uh, the bed of resentments that begin to kind of stack up in, in relationships uh, where there hasn't been healing at this emotional level. And so resentment is, is, is the enemy, so to speak, uh, when it comes to uh, sustaining recovery. So if we don't find a way to address resentment effectively, we've got a problem. One of the values, I think, of the 12-step programs uh, writ large, for example, Alcoholics Anonymous, is that there's a great deal of attention uh, given to addressing resentments. I was, uh, I mentioned I was at the treatment center earlier today. As I walked in, one of the gentlemen who's there in treatment was had a stack of papers surrounding him, and I asked him what he was doing. And he was working on step four, of, of the 12-step program, which is, uh, is the, uh, the logging of a moral inventory of every person we can remember that we have wronged. And he shared with me how emotionally uh, exacting this process is. I know firsthand because I did this myself. And uh, the, the goal there is to get down underneath the things that we have done to others and that, that they have done to us so that we can begin to kind of surgically address the resentments that pile up. And then there are later uh, steps in the program, specifically steps eight and nine, in which we make amends to those that we have wronged. And so we focused on that here in, in our fourth session on self-compassion, which included uh, asking others for forgiveness. We also included that last week in our conversation as we summarized some of those steps. And today we're going to be looking right at what we can do to heal um, uh, resentments both ways in relationships. And I'll be taking through, through six steps here shortly that get us right into the heart of working with resentments with the goal of transferring the negative emotions around uh, harms that we've done or harms that have been done to us and, and opening back up the doors to the possibility of a loving connection. I also mentioned in talking about Dr. Worthington last week, Everett Worthington, that he makes a distinction between forgiveness and reconciliation. So let me review that because that's pertinent before we dive in more directly into our topic for today, which is reconciliation. Everett Worthington makes the distinction between forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness being an inner process where I can relinquish or let go of, of uh, the desire to uh, seek revenge, for example. Uh, I can even do interior work on uh, turning my resentments towards somebody that's harmed me, towards uh, empathy and even compassion. <clears throat> but that doesn't always lead to the next step, which is literal reconciliation. And the distinction that Everett Worthington makes is that forgiveness is basically an interior process of healing and that I'm responsible for, but, but converting that into actual real time in relationship to another person, especially someone who's harmed me, there are many instances in which that's not prudent. It may be that the other person is not available for dialogue. It may be that the other person is not safe to be with. And so to reconcile, which is to literally heal, heal in real time that relationship, opening up the door for further uh, uh, connection, may not be advised. And so, as I proceed forward today, I want you to know that nothing I'm suggesting applies to situations that involve unsafety, whether it's literal physical unsafety or more often emotional unsafety. Um, it takes two to tango with reconciliation. There has to be the possibility of a meeting of the minds. And uh, as we talk about examples or move into that a little bit uh, later today, I want to really caution you uh, especially to, uh, against 
Choosing to reconcile in ill-advised situations, uh, it requires some discernment for sure, and I think that you can trust your instincts. I had somebody in my group today say that he trusts his gut 99% of the time in terms of this issue of security or safety in a relationship. And I think in that spirit, I'd like to suggest that you do the same, okay? So reconciliation, when we're talking about reconciling to a current relationship, presupposes a foundation of emotional safety and security in the relationship. There's been harm that's been done, but there's the possibility of healing that harm through mutual forgiveness, but only in the context of mutuality, only in the context of a commitment to healing the wrongs that have been done and moving forward in, in a loving connection. So let me then uh, introduce you to uh, another psychologist's work. This is Dr. Susan Johnson. She is known uh, in psychology as Sue Johnson. She is probably the premier theorist uh, in the last 20 to 30 years in marriage and family therapy. She's at the very top of the heap. Her background is in what's referred to as attachment theory. Attachment theory has a, a, a longer history of 50 to 60 years. began with the work of Sir John Bowlby in England, working um, in the wake of World War II, working with orphans, and beginning to try to understand what happens uh, uh, for the good and what happens for the bad in our early relationships. These early relationships are referred to as attachment relationships. Psychology, I think, unfortunately, has chosen the term attachment for intimate relationships. So attachment has to do with connection or relationship. And so attachment theory specifically connects to that. I'm remembering when I first encountered attachment theory in graduate school as a concept, not having any idea what it meant, having all kinds of associations that had nothing to do with, with relationship or intimacy. So I'm asking for you to do that translation in your own mind. Now, Sue Johnson, who's an adherent of this tradition and certainly is well studied in the work of John Bowlby and those that followed in his tradition, uh, uh, began in the 1980s. In fact, her uh, graduate school experience is contemporary with my own. And while I was in graduate school, she was up in uh, Canada studying relationships. She spent hours and hours and hours and hours reviewing videos of couples in therapy trying to get at what seems to work versus what doesn't seem to work in couples therapy based in, and she was using as her lens for understanding what was going on, the need that we all have, including specifically in our most uh, fundamental or most emotionally intimate relationships, the need that we have for significant connection, for significant attachment, and how does that inform therapy uh, for the good. So she developed out of her uh, years and years of analyzing uh, infinite numbers of live videos of couples in counseling. She developed what's referred to as emotionally focused therapy. She's applied this to couples, applied this more recently to family work. And the idea is how do you capitalize on the instinct that we all have to rely on each other? We're social animals. In fact, we talked about this in a previous uh, uh, session, is that evolutionarily, Survival favors our staying connected to one another for the for purposes of protection and safety and support, including emotional and spiritual support. And so what can we do to work with that drive for connection and, and uh, utilize that as leverage, in a sense, for making for changes in relationship? So in her study of what works in terms of maximizing attachment relationship, it was inevitable, particularly in the context of reviewing videos of couples in therapy, that she would come across what she came to call attachment injuries. 
Attachment injuries are synonymous with trauma to a relationship, and that can take uh, multiple forms. Uh, a couple of examples of that are uh, sometimes massive uh, uh, attachment injuries, and it can actually be a single instance, such as a betrayal of trust along the, the lines of an infidelity in a, in a marital, a committed relationship, uh, represents an attachment injury that just itself can, can leave, uh, at, most oftentimes it blows relationships into crisis, and many of those relationships end over an infidelity. That's an example of a severe relational trauma. And uh, these, are, these are clients that, that Sue Johnson and marriage and family therapists work with, is that, believe it or not, it's possible to heal even that level of, of a trauma or a rupture in a relationship. But it takes incredible skill to be able to move through that, as well as an openness and a commitment on the part of the participants in the therapy. So one example of a relationship trauma is a betrayal of trust uh, at, a, at a major level. I'm going to talk about it at a minor level in a minute. Another one is emotional abandonment. Another trauma to relationship, another rupture in relationship is emotional abandonment. And it's particularly pronounced in a time of great need. And, and uh, Dr. Johnson summarizes examples of that. For example, one member of a couple going into surgery and needing to have somebody present or being severely ill or with the loss of a parent or the loss of a child the loss of a job, times where we have more than ever a need for support, and when our partner isn't able to be with us during that time, that can go into a deep, lacerating, lasting uh, emotional injury that in order for the relationship to move forward is going to require healing. But there's also this idea of death by a thousand paper cuts. You may have heard that phrase before. There's a stab wound, like an infidelity, or a, a gross example of emotional abandonment that's obvious to all. But uh, perhaps even more often, there are the little paper cuts, there are the repeated visitations of, let's say, lesser abandonments that added up, begin to accumulate. And uh, I've, I've summarized that here to talk about that in terms of when you have in a relationship a partner who's unable to keep your feelings or your perspective in mind, especially when it matters. So you bring home uh, a successful experience or you bring home a grief or a grievance, or a complaint, um, and you bring it to your partner and they're not emotionally responsive, it might not be a single one of those events that would, that would lead to uh, uh, this level of trauma, but the accumulation or the pattern of those over time, the pattern of misattunement to one another, surely represents an attachment injury that can be the end of a relationship, if not literally, it can lead to an inner death in the relationship where there's a stalemate and no further intimacy is really uh, uh, possible. You have a certain ceiling for intimacy, and beyond that, couples won't go. So what to do about these relationship injuries? Well, I think for many of us, because we don't have skills, we never learned how to deal with these, we, we resort to sweeping it under the carpet. Do you remember last week, if you were present last week, I introduced the idea from the, uh, 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 the founder of modern psychoanalysis, Sigmund Freud, who said that repression is non-selective. So if we sweep these little things under the carpet, especially as they accumulate, it also relates to our sweeping positive emotions under the carpet because after all, emotions, especially hurt emotions, represent danger, so we don't dare mention those to each other. And soon enough, you have a couple. This is, a, uh, this is something I remember reflecting on even as a young boy, going out to a restaurant and watching a couple that looked like they had been together for years looking past each other for an entire meal. 
And so there's this kind of silent desperation being communicated or not communicated, shut down. And uh, you get a repression in the relationship, not only of negative feelings, but also of positive feelings. So let me talk a little bit about what happens with these unhealed wounds before we talk about some practical steps about how we can move towards healing them. Unhealed wounds, they tend to come up, rise up, they tend to be triggered with, with uh, our attachment needs. And what I mean by that is that it will be in our most important relationships that these unhealed wounds will crop up. I was just mentioning this in the men's group before I uh, came here today, is that over the years of working with couples in, in counseling, it's happened so many times where one or the other a member of the couple will say, if it wasn't for my spouse, I wouldn't have any problems. The only problems I have arise in relationship to my husband or my wife or my boyfriend or my girlfriend. And as I shared with the group today, there's an inner response for me of, of, of compassion, because I know how frustrating that can be, but also an acknowledgement that it would only be in our most important relationships that these attachment injuries would rise up, because those are the relationships that matter the most to us. It's in the relationships that matter the most to us that we receive injuries, whether it's early in our development with our parents and our siblings, or later on in our romantic relationships and committed relationships across a lifetime. Those relationships hold the most gravitas, and so injuries to those relationships also have the most traction in our lives. And so those will be the ones that are problematic. So it really is kind of, well, duh, it would be in those relationships that we would suffer the most. And so our, our, our most significant relationships represent where these triggers uh, come up the most in terms of anything that's unhealed will matter the most in our central relationships. Now, as I mentioned earlier, what I call sweeping things under the carpet is what psychology calls dismissal. So. It's a natural strategy to want to avoid or dismiss friction or conflict in a relationship because after all it's unpleasant. But we pay a great price for that and that strategy of dismissing um, what's happened in terms of an injury or a hurt that's been stored away, kind of locked away, is that it will lead to a couple of things. One is increased distance in the relationship. That would be the couple I just talked about who sit together through a meal and never engage with each other. You get an increased distance because, after all, you have to stay away from what's locked away in the basement. So we have kind of a mutual agreement not to go there. So we can actually go through the motions of having harmony, but there's really no intimacy emotionally that's really possible. Uh, that's one possibility. The flip side of that would be uh, not only do you get increased distance, but oftentimes you also get uh, increased uh, reactivity. And so this, uh, Freud talked about this in terms of displacement. If I don't deal through the front door with whatever's a conflict between you and me, it's liable to come in through the side door or the back door. And so, so something that's completely unrelated, I'll pick the archetypal example of squeezing the toothpaste at the bottom of the tube or in the middle of the tube, couples will end up, or family members will end up having friction or conflict over things that are completely unrelated to the initial injury, but they end up becoming kind of strange attractors for their resentment. And so you just walk around being aggravated or irritable all of the time, and that would be the increased reactivity. So this strategy of putting things away may work in the short term, not so well. In the long term, it's guaranteed not to work, because it really leads the relationship to move more and more into kind of a parallel type of thing, 
I have the uh, image in my mind of two kids who are playing in the sandbox, and at a certain developmental age, kids don't play with each other. They play parallel to each other. So you end up with this kind of parallel play in relationships because the distance has arisen, because there's no way to really manage uh, these hurts and uh, injuries from the past. And also you have these temporary uh, periodic explosions that happen in the relationship around where you squeeze the toothpaste or didn't take out the trash or didn't wash the dishes. There's no end to all of the, the examples of what can come up uh, uh, when, it, when the central injury is ignored. So our question is this, what are the minimal requirements for restoring trust when trust has been broken? We've already established that an attachment injury, one of the things that it does is it undermines my trust in you. And, uh, or your trust in me. And so how do we, how do we heal that break? How do, we, how do we mend that rupture? This gets us right into the area that Everett Worthington talked about when he differentiated between forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness I can do internally. I can do that in my own meditations and in my own journaling. And there's great value to that. But that's the next step, again, in relationships that, in which we can afford to be vulnerable and that have the capacity for healing. We're moving now into that second zone that Worthington uh, introduced, reconciliation, and we really haven't discussed that uh, in the two previous presentations on self-compassion on forgiveness. So here we move into reconciliation, per se. I'm gonna introduce six steps that are essential to effective reconciliation, and I'm gonna ask you to journal as we go along, and I'll give you instructions as we go through these. The hope here is that as you take notes and as you internalize this material, that you can move from this towards applying it to a real-life current relationship in which there has been a break in trust, where there's been a harm done to one party or another or both, and that you wish to heal that. So the goal here is to, to take this material, incorporate it, mull it over, and then apply it in relationship. Okay. So the first step, the first step of reconciliation, requires for the partner who's been injured or hurt to speak about the specific pain or harm that he or she experienced. This is where the injured party tells you what's hurt them. So what I'd like to ask you to do is take a moment right now to think of a, uh, an example in your life. Pick one that's manageable. Pick one in a relationship where maybe there could be some mending that would be possible. And in this case, pick, pick a relationship in which you were the harmed party. So we're going to apply step one to you right now. You're the, you're the hurt partner. And I'm going to ask you to do this. Uh, uh, afterwards, after today, you're, at, you're very welcome to write out exactly what you would say to this person. Owing to time, we won't be able to take time to do that right now. But what I would like you to do is write down this slide as your instruction. The hurt partner speaks about the specific pain. And I'm going to ask you to uh, answer a couple of questions, and I'd love for you to write this down, actually. The first thing I want to ask you is, if you're the hurt partner speaking about your own pain, imagine into that, that you're articulating what hurt you to somebody that did something to you, and maybe they don't even know they did it. I want to ask you, what would be some of the challenges that would arise for you? This is very individual, but what would be some of the challenges in doing that? I'll give you a couple of examples. If I'm not used to asserting myself, is that if I'm there really to uh, please other people, even at the cost of my own uh, uh, 
autonomy or having a voice. Then to actually even go through the act of giving voice to something, especially something that's vulnerable, pain that I've been caused, that can be very scary. can be very difficult to do. So there's a challenge right away, just the idea of me speaking and having a voice. Here's the second example of a challenge. By the way, these aren't exhaustive. They're just meant to be suggestive of what you might consider in terms of challenges for you if you're this hurt person expressing your hurt to your partner. Is that if you have a history of that not going well, uh, and many of us have had that history, uh, it's risky to put it out there. Why would I want to bring up something vulnerable to you if the likelihood of it not, if it, of it not going well, of it going sideways, if that's, if that's a high likelihood, why would I risk doing that with you? It's going against the grain to do that, isn't it? So these are examples of challenges that can come here in step one. But I want to ask you a second, a second question, and that is, can you imagine what might be potential benefits of you voicing the hurt? Voicing what it is that this loved one did to you. Can you imagine those benefits? I'd like you to have that in mind and even jot down an example or two of that. I personally believe that if you don't have incentive, if you don't have a vision of, of, uh, of benefits, then what would motivate you to go through this, especially if it's difficult? And I don't think it's easy for many of us, especially with something that really hurt us. It's really challenging to do that. We have to come up with really strong incentives to do that, and that's what I'm asking you to identify right now. Let me see if I can uh, identify a couple of examples just with you right now. And again, these are just to suggest directions that you might want to explore further yourself. If I'm a member of that couple that sits in the restaurant and looks past each other, uh, and there's a deadness or a staleness in my relationship, wouldn't it be wonderful to imagine that opening this up, what if it could go differently? What if there actually could be a mending uh, uh, of the bridge here? where we could actually bridge back to each other and we wouldn't have to look past each other in the restaurant. Now, wouldn't that be worth something? What if I'm tired about walking around with this burning resentment inside of my belly or inside my chest or inside my throat, uh, manifesting physically? Wouldn't it be wonderful to relieve myself of that burden? Uh, and might it make it worthwhile to risk articulating, giving voice to my hurts? I think it's really important that we identify potential benefits of this this each one of these steps. Okay, that's the first step. Let's move to the second step. In the second step, it's where the injuring partner stays emotionally present as the other, the injured one, is expressing their, their pain. And the injured partner acknowledges, at least at a very beginning level, his or her responsibility for what happened, owning up to it. We're going to do a step uh, uh, in, a, in, a, in a few minutes that takes this deeper. For right now, it's just about staying emotionally present. And so what I'm asking you to do this time is I want, to I want you to identify a time that you've harmed somebody else and they're telling you what you did to, to harm them unintentionally, perhaps. Oftentimes it's unintentional. Nevertheless, they were harmed. And I want you to imagine this. Imagine into that situation. Now you're the you're the one who exacted the pain. And I want to ask you this, what's the challenge of sitting with that and being emotionally open and really listening, opening your heart, staying open, 
What are some challenges with that? I would like you to think about that. I'd love for you to write an example or two. Can you imagine into that? What makes that tough? I'll give you a couple of instances here. It may be very hard to curb the instinct to defend myself, especially if I'm vulnerable to shame. Is that if, if I own up to, if I accept responsibility for having done something that hurt you, um, it may expose me to <coughs> my own vulnerability around feeling adequate, feeling okay as a partner, feeling sensitive uh, as a human being, I may have done some things that are really painful for me to get close to, and your naming them makes me want to shut down, not stay open. And so we're talking about going upstream against that impulse, which is to shut down. That's one example. Here's another example of what might make this challenging. What about if I open myself up and own up that responsibility, and then you say that up? You store that away, and you won't ever let that go. Do you remember the time that? And so we're not suggesting that as the strategy here. Uh, but that's the goal here. In fact, what we're trying to do is to open up and heal resentments so they don't keep coming back over time. And as we continue through these next several steps, you'll see, uh, see a procedure for doing that. But it can be very vulnerable, especially if making myself open and non-defensive means that you take advantage of me. And so that's another challenge. If those are challenges, what are possible benefits of my opening myself up and listening to you, keeping my heart open as I listen to you. What are some possible benefits? I'm going to ask you to do something here for just a second. Imagine what it feels like when you've been able to share with somebody a harm or a hurt that they've done to you and they didn't get defensive. That'll give us a clue to some of the benefits here. If I can stay open to you, if, you've, if, if I've done something to harm you, and if I can stay open to you as you name that in my presence, Imagine how good that is, how good that can feel to the, the harmed person. And we're on the way towards forgiveness. We're actually on the way towards building a bridge again in the relationship. That might be ample incentive to try doing something, letting down the defenses and staying open to you, even if it's challenging to do that. Also imagine what it's like to carry around unspoken shame for things we've done. Uh, what would it be like to expose them to the light and to the air and just get them out on the table so that we don't have to walk around looking over our shoulder or feeling guilty or ashamed all the time just to be able to, to have a meeting of the minds? Wouldn't that be worth something? Let's move next to step three. Step three is a process, part of this process, where both partners work as hard as they can to see the other person's position. And to do that not only with head, but also with heart, with compassion. I call it a step here, but it's really a process. There's a give and take here. This one can be very difficult, so let me ask you, what are some of the challenges, and have you write down, what are some of the challenges to doing this? To remaining open and unbiased, and allowing for a give and a take, where you, you listen to the other person's position and try to express... Try to understand it and express your understanding of it, and they do the same with you. What are some of the challenges that arise there? <clears throat> I remember right now my training, early training in graduate school, where we were, where we were being taught to, um, to listen actively. And one of the terms that was used for it was, creating muscles for decentering, 
And the idea of decentering is where I step out of my own frame of reference and try to understand your experience so well that when I express to you my understanding of your experience, we work on that until we get it exactly right on. You can say, that's exactly it, Bob. That's, that requires decentering. It requires me stepping outside of my own bias, out of my own perspectives, putting them on the shelf temporarily so I can listen to you uh, on your own terms. And that's really what we're asking to do. So if there's one challenge, it's just really hard to do that. <laughs> Most of us have had a lot of experience or training in doing that. I think oftentimes this can be very helpful where it's had to have a coach or a therapist that can help a couple begin to develop these skills slow the communication down, really make sure that one person feels understood, and then in turn is able to provide that same understanding. The idea here is that both parties have a side of the story. So for example, if I'm the injured one, I need for you to hear how you injured me and what that felt like to me, and I need to know that you're willing to truly really enter into my experience and empathize with me. And if on the other hand, I'm the, the party that injured, most often unintentionally, it's not, it's not to, we're not talking about defensiveness here, we're just talking about the other person has a perspective that may at some point, I don't think it's early on, but may at some point need to be heard and responded to no less compassionately than the, than the previous. And so both sides have a story that wants to be heard, and this is, this is some challenging work for sure. What's the benefit of that? I think it should be clear, is that by this point, is that what we're talking about in terms of uh, mending these wounds is that we're beginning to open up a possibility of connecting one another without aggression and without defensiveness. There's a lot of blaming that can go on. I talked earlier about irritability and uh, uh, kind of operating in a chronically aggravated state. There's a lot of blaming that can go on uh, in relationship, and we're talking about doing this without blaming. Psychology talks about it in terms of making I statements. Uh, this hurt my feelings, and I go into what that felt like to me. Uh, I didn't know that this hurt your feelings, and I go into talking about that, really owning up to our own subjectivity and having the other person mirror that or respond to that uh, can feel enormously relieving, and we're beginning to move back into connection again. I think the next step, step four, I think is the pearl of great price of this series. This is where the injuring party deepens into owning the impact of whatever harm um, was done to the other. Intentionally or unintentionally, and I, I believe that most of these things, I think we step on each other's toes unintentionally just by virtue of our being human beings. We can all love, but our love has its flaws or its limitations, and uh, we'll be constantly stepping on each other's toes if we're in relationship. So we've got to find some way to mend these breaks in relationship. And so this step four, I think, uh, can be the most challenging, but it also has the highest payoff. Let me break this down. What does this mean for me to deepen into owning up to what I've done if I'm the injuring party? I want you to think about an example where you've harmed somebody and, and follow me through these five elements. Uh, the first element of doing step five, or excuse me, step four effectively is that I express to you, if I've injured you, I express to you that that matters to me, that I care deeply for you that it's not my wish to harm you. And so I, I, I'm confessing to you that I prize or value you. That's the first element. The second element is that I validate your experience. That requires non-defensiveness, non-defensiveness, that word, <laughs> non-defensiveness on my part. <laughs> that I can see how 
what I did hurt your feelings and that it makes sense to me that, that you felt hurt. In fact, oftentimes how I talk about this is that I say if I was on the receiving end of what I did, I'd be hurt too. So it's validating that experience. Third element is that I own up to what I did. I don't evade. I don't blame it on somebody else. I don't go, what about you? I don't do that kind of thing. I own up to it. And this is very tough to do, like we talked about earlier, especially if I'm afflicted by shame. Uh, uh, it takes a lot of trust in the relationship to own up to it, to say, I did, I did do that. I wasn't sensitive. I did forget. I did ignore. I did harm you. The fourth, the fourth element is related to that, which is I express heartfelt guilt or regret for that. It pains me that I said this to you or that I didn't say something to you in a time where you needed it. It pains me greatly. Uh, I feel ashamed of myself. I feel awful about that. I think if the other party doesn't hear that kind of sorrow, then it's hard to imagine that there's going to be a change. Which brings us to the fifth element. The fifth element is, I reassure you that I have every intention of healing whatever it is that led to that and not repeating the offense. This can be very difficult to do if, if you've been injured and you put away those feelings of whatever it was, if it was a betrayal of trust, if it was a sense of being emotionally abandoned or missed, to bring those back up and to ask for those to be met now can feel very risky. And that's one of the challenges of this. I'd like you to journal yourself in terms of your own experience. When you've made a decision to never go there again and go against that, it can bring up some real internal challenges. But let me ask you this, what's the payoff? Of, of bringing to your partner vulnerably what it is you want. I think it's even implied in the question is that maybe for now, maybe for the first time, I may get what I want if I ask for it. The risk is disappointment, and that's what gets us to put this stuff away in the basement. And so we're asking ourselves to go against that uh, impulse to protect ourselves for the sake of restoring loving connection. And then step six. Step six is, is, is the, the, the final portion here, and it's reviewing what we've done in the previous five steps, reviewing those together uh, as a relationship, as a couple, uh, with the hopes of consolidating and creating a new story, a new narrative, one that remembers that we have the capacity to heal uh, these wounds. And one that also has embedded in it hope for the future that we can revisit this, this strategy for healing, for reconciliation, in the future because it's quite inevitable that we'll step on each other's toes inadvertently most often. Uh, it's inevitable that that will happen in the future. And so wouldn't it be wonderful to imagine that we've been able to find a way to heal this past hurt? We've done that together. And that if something comes up in the future, we, need to, we don't need to be quite so worried about Going, uh, going underground with it, that we can actually put it out on the table and work on it here together in real time. And so th this sixth step is vital as well, to begin to create a story that's a hopeful narrative that draws on uh, the positive uh, learning and experiences and rejoining that were made possible by the previous five steps. Let me recommend this as we wind down for today, is that you review uh, each one of the steps that I've given you, that you journal uh, 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 both sides of, uh, you know, a, 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 an injury in a relationship that you may have been on the receiving end of or that you might have been on the administering end of 
and contemplate bringing this into uh, the relationship, bringing it to light. I don't think there's any uh, shame in bringing these steps right into relationship, practicing them together. It's like building any new muscle. It takes practice to do this, especially that item number four, where we broke it down into five elements. I don't think that that's obvious to any of us. It takes practicing. You start off with consciously practicing, and, and after a while it begins to become more rote, more habitual, more uh, natural feeling. Uh, but I really recommend that you consider trying that. I also recommend that you spend some time working uh, out your own resistances, what I call challenges, as well as reminding yourself of the benefit of each one of these steps, as well as the payoff for having done all of that. You really can create a new blueprint for your relationship. Um, uh, we're really addressing at a very deep level what it is that drives relationships apart. And isn't it wonderful to imagine that over time, with your own commitment, sometimes with skilled intervention from helpers, that you can actually begin to heal these wounds uh, and actually deepen the intimacy and the commitment in the relationship. May I recommend to you, uh, uh, I mentioned her earlier, Sue Johnson, may I recommend to you her book, which is available in hard copy as well as a virtual, uh, you know, a digital copy, her book, Hold Me Tight. She has an entire lengthy chapter devoted to what we discussed, and what she does is that she adds clinical examples from her practice of every element that we discussed today. It's very helpful fleshing out of this. So you have, if you have an interest in, in going a bit deeper, that could be the best 10 or 20 bucks that you spent is on that book, and specifically her chapter on forgiving relationship injuries. So I recommend you to Sue Johnson's resources. I also recommend you to her resources online. You can see all kinds of YouTube videos of Sue Johnson's working with couples and presenting uh, presenting the, uh, the, the theories that she's developed following on the research that she's done. She's uh, a top mark. I really recommend her most highly. I'm fully aware that we've gone through this process very quickly. There's nothing about this that is easy or simple or straightforward. It's not linear. I, it's hard to talk about something in steps, for example, six steps, without creating the illusion that there's a sequence that you must follow lockstep and that it goes just that way. But life doesn't go just that way, does it? But we're talking about building six kind of complementary muscles and that over time you can build a new neural network in the brain, literally, as well as in the heart and between in the relationship. You can develop a new way of, of moving through very painful interactions for the sake of healing. I think that the holidays when we're with family and with loved ones give us a chance, uh, an opportunity to experience what it's like to be uh, at, at odds with one another but also an opportunity, here's a laboratory uh, uh, opportunity for us to experiment with healing some of these breaks. And you can start with something small. I recommend that. I also recommend, as I said earlier, that you start with a relationship that you have confidence that you could mend, uh, uh, mend a wound. The 12-step programs talk about making amends, and that's really what we're talking about doing here, is making mutual amends so that we can reconcile relationships. I believe that relationships are our single greatest insurance in the realm of addiction recovery for ensuring a sustained, successful recovery. It's having healed, uh, trusting, transparent relationships, and here's a means for doing that. So I uh, entrust this material to you. I also encourage you to uh, review it again. It will be available online at, at Beginnings Treatment Centers in the archive there, as well as you can come to this site and review this material. Uh, it's not a one-pass-through type of thing. I, I, as I was reviewing 
Sue Johnson's material this week in preparation for today, and I'm aware of reviewing and reviewing and reviewing this material. I've presented it numerous times, including to clinicians that work with couples, and uh, I always get something new of this. And more importantly, and to the point, is I practice this in my own life, in my simple relationships, including my own marriage. It's just, it's absolutely essential for me to uh, learn this and learn it by heart. And I hope that you'll do the same. Thank you for your attendance today. Let me mention this. Next week, I'm going to pause. It looks like we have a comment or question. Uh, this is Masayo. Welcome, Masayo. It's good to have you with us. Uh, Masayo says, I think assertive communication skill is another crucial skill for us to be able to communicate things like this with each other. Thank you very much, uh, Masayo. I absolutely agree. Do you remember with step one where I talked about talking about a hurt that, that someone has, has, has done to us? That requires for us to assert our voices. And what if I've never been able to assert my voice? Or in doing that, I've only ever had a punitive response. It's very challenging, doesn't it? So absolutely, let me, let me recommend that you, uh, if you review, for example, Sue Johnson's material, it's implicit in all of her material that each member of the couple, particularly the one who's been injured, assert him or herself uh, in speaking in terms of eye language, in uh, of opening up into vulnerability and speaking of feelings, uh, in resisting the impulse to blame. Assertive communication stands right in between, on the one hand, aggressive communication, and the other hand, passive communication, which itself can become passive-aggressive communication. And what I mean by that, for me to assert the harm that was done to me is not the same as going after you, going for the jugular, wanting to harm you. And so assertive communication takes a standpoint, but it does not have as its goal hurting or exacting revenge on the partner. And it's not the least bit passive. In fact, what often, oftentimes happens, Messiah, in relationships is that these hurts go underground and they become passive, and then they come up indirectly. They end up popping up all over the place. I think of that whack-a-mole game where the, the mole keeps popping up and you constantly have to whack it down. Is that these, a, a passive response to what otherwise should be asserted ends up coming up uh, in, in from the side and ends up manifesting as aggression. It ends up manifesting as being irritable about the toothpaste for just a, a, a simple example. And it's because there hasn't been assertive communication. So I guess I, I want to support what you're saying and suggest this, that assertive communication is right through the heart of everything that we've talked about today. So uh, we'll follow up on this more. I'm very interested. I also want to invite you to submit questions and, and further interactions through the various websites, through the Facebook site for Ask an Addiction Specialist. You can also communicate through Beginnings Treatment Centers. I'll give you my own um, website that, that also has a place for comments, and you can communicate me directly th uh, that way. It comes directly to my email. But let me first of all say what we'll be looking at next week. We're in the holiday season, and so I think that forgiveness and reconciliation uh, is an important topic. I also think that the next week's presentation is vital, and that has to do with how do we manage stress. And so next week's topic will be unstressing for the holidays. Uh, the subtitle of that will be self-calming as daily practice. And so I'll be introducing some strategies, very practical strategies next week for how we can stay centered and calm as much as possible in the midst of what we've talked about today, which is when we get activated by pain, for example, of a harm that's been done to us, and especially if it's in the past and the resentment is there and it gets activated in a current relationship, 
How can I calm myself down? That's what will be the topic of next week. I want to thank all of you for your participation today. Thank you, Masayo, for your contribution here. Hope it's helpful. Let me know if you have further thoughts on this, uh, Masayo, and anybody else that participated. Uh, I want to thank you for joining me, and I also want to recommend that you also go to my website. It's www.drbobweathers.com. Very simple. And there's, uh, there are a lot of resources that we've discussed today that will be available on the website. And including on the last page, you can contact me directly. So contact me through Ask an Addiction Specialist, through Beginnings Treatment Centers, or on my website with any comments or questions that you have. I'd be very happy to respond to you. More to follow. Come back next week. Take good care. Good luck. Okay. Hope you ha uh, have success with applying all, all that we talked about today. Take care. Bye-bye for now.